Eric is our oh. yes man. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. You're fantastic at coding, but do you have an action plan to take it to the next level? The upcoming book, Next Level Freelance, will help you optimize your freelance business for happiness. The book is packed with actionable steps to make more money, case studies, tips to find more clients, and exercises for you to establish your desired lifestyle. Extras include nine interviews with freelancers who make great money while enjoying great work-life balance, videos on strategies to find quality subcontractors, and videos on making more free time by outsourcing your daily tasks. Check it out today, nextlevelfreelance.com. This episode is sponsored by PlanScope. PlanScope is a project management and collaboration app built for freelancers and the way they work with clients. It makes it easy to price out new estimates and once you're underway, help answer the question, will this get done on time and under budget? I've been using PlanScope to do my estimates and manage my projects and I really, really like it. It makes it really easy to keep things in, in order and understand when things will get done. You can go check it out at planscope.io. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 77 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Reuven Lerner. Hello there. Curtis McHale. Hello. Ash Dryden. Hi, everyone. Eric Davis. Hi. Jeff Schoolcraft. What's up? I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, Brennan Dunn. Hey, guys. So, Brennan, since you haven't been on the show before, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So, um... My name is Brennan Dunn. I came from running a consulting business. And uh, within the last year and a half, I've actually fully transitioned to uh, making all of my income through products. Um, I'm probably best known for PlanScope, which is my project management app. But I also run a newsletter. I run a, uh, uh, or I've written two books, Double Your Freelancing Rate and The Blueprint. And I teach workshops. So I teach a workshop on called the Consultancy Masterclass, and I also teach a workshop on recurring revenue. So you uh, closing up your uh, consultancy, is that why everyone's unemployed right now? <laughs> uh, Start with the softballs, pro- eh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably not. No, actually, it actually worked out pretty well. Um, most of the people we just converted to 1099s, and most of them still con- contracted through us, but a lot of them now are spinning off their own product companies or they're happily freelancing. Uh, so everyone has actually done pretty well. Nice. I'm, I'm a little curious. We're going to get into uh, recurring revenue, but what made you make the transition? For me personally, it was being on the line each month to pay $100,000 in payroll. Uh, we Most of our income came through you know transactional one-off projects and you know, I would start each month, I would wake up, let's say, you know, September 1st and think, you know, crap, I've got to bring in a lot of money and I don't know where I'm going to necessarily getting, uh, I, I don't necessarily know where I'm going to get it this month. And just kind of that constant pressure and knowing that I just had to really take care of 10 other people, it frankly got to me. And I always, you know, I was bit by the product bug. I wanted, uh, I wanted to have a SaaS business. I wanted to kind of have that kind of lifestyle business, I guess. And I just did, I guess, what was necessary to uh, to get there. Yeah, but consultancies make gazillions of dollars, right? Uh, no. <laughs> the, it actually, my yeah, whole life plan shot right there. <laughs> I actually made a lot more money as a freelancer than I did running a uh, a team with multi millions of dollars in revenue. It was just a lot more clear cut. 
um, I didn't need to worry about utilization. And, um, you know, if, if one client jumped, it became a pretty big deal. Like, so we would have maybe three or four projects going on at once. If one of them left, I mean, that's, that's kind of dramatic, right? So, um, yeah, it just became, it, it's, it's very stressful. It's some people do great at it. Frankly, I think I'm more cut out for kind of the lone gun, um, working on my own products and kind of minding my own business sort of thing. So you, so, Brennan, Brennan, when you go ahead. working on your own products, I'm, I'm curious, like, does that mean that you do everything yourself or that you just outsource the things as opposed to hiring people that you don't want to do or can't do? I actually do. I do everything myself. So I write my newsletter each week myself. I build and develop and design PlanScope. I support it. I market it. I support all of my other products. Yeah, I mean, I, I stay busy, but it's not that it's a lot of time each week that I spend. It's just a lot of context switching. So, you know, I might start off the day writing a newsletter and then I'll jump into um, doing some email support and then I'll get into development. So, yeah, I, I stay busy, but it's it's uh, yeah, it's all me right now. So do you still chase contracts or are you fully into the marketing products at this point? No, I'm actually, I don't do any, any consulting any longer. Um, I do, well, I have two coaching clients, which is kind of like consulting um, because I'm still effectively selling my time, but the everything else now is, is products. Cool. The, the topic for today was recurring revenue, and I'm a little curious as to how you think about that because for a lot of people, recurring revenue is like, I don't know, they, they make a bunch of money or something, I don't know. You mean uh, passive income? Yeah. Not doing anything? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah no, I, lots of air quotes, though, doesn't it? It, it, need, hardly, yeah, it needs a lot of air quotes. It's lots and lots of work. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, so my, my take on recurring revenue is predictable revenue. It doesn't mean no effort revenue. You know, like I was saying back when I, when I had this monthly payroll obligation, I kind of always looked at consulting as having a lot of fixed expenses. You know, you might, if you're a freelancer, you have your rent or your mortgage, you have your, you know, food bill, you have whatever that you need to pay each month, but your variable by definition tends to be very, um, you know, fluctuating, right? Like you might have a lot of work this month and then the next month you're kind of, you know, not so booked. And so you have variable income, but you have fixed expenses. And what I've, what I've really been focusing on for the last few months is how can I come up with ways that allow consultants and freelancers to have that kind of fixed income to offset their fixed expenses. So that's what I mean. I'm, I, I don't mean at all no effort like, you know, wake up and random people are sending you tons of money. Oh, I was hoping that I could wake up and have random people sending me tons of money. <laughs> oh, you, you can, right? Write a book, you know, write, build a, build a transactional product and you can. But the kind of recurring revenue I mean for consulting is, is much more high touch. Right. I mean, I, I remember, Brandon, when, when, uh, I've been consulting for like uh, 17 years, 18 years now, and I got and my wife and I got married. I guess it was about 14 years ago, and it was definitely surprising to her. I'd already been used to it for a few years, but it was surprising to her that our income went up and went down so much each month. And so stabilizing that, was, yeah, stabilizing that has definitely been a good thing. Yeah, when you've got a family, when you've got kids in school, when you have a mortgage, I mean, you, you kind of. That's why a lot of, I mean, the number one churn reason for PlanScope, my product, is ran out of work, got a full-time job. So I can tell you firsthand that a lot of freelancers really quickly retreat back to 
salary because at least it's predictable, right? At least you know, I'm probably going to make this much money this month. Yeah, I remember when the recession hit a number of years ago, and I was talking to my accountant, and I said, you know, with all these layoffs in high tech, I'm sure I'm going to have tons of competition as a freelancer because all these people without jobs are going to try freelancing. And he said, you are crazy. Most people just want to get a stable paycheck, and they're not interested in trying out the freelance thing. That's right. That's exactly what I found, too, is that and, – and I had people that I knew lose their jobs, and – uh you know, I try to talk them into freelancing and they're like, well, that's so risky. And I'm looking at them going, you don't have a job. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> One person fired you and you were done. Right. And so I've, I've said to people also, by having several clients, maybe it won't be the best. Maybe it'll be uh, even somewhat devastating to have a big client go away, but it won't be everything. Yeah. So when you're talking about recurring revenue and you're talking about you keep using a word, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but you know that that regular income, having that you know without so many ups and down ups and downs, yeah, having a predictable income, mm-hmm. and then the the products you're talking about, where you know you get kind of the same amount every month. I'm assuming it's something like a, a SaaS or subscription based setup. I mean, there's a lot of way there there there's a lot of ways to effectively make recurring revenue, right? I mean, the, the, on the very kind of far end of the spectrum is going to be, you know, your, your kind of low-touch turnkey SaaS model, right? Where mm-hmm. you have a marketing site, people find it, they kick off a trial, and so on. But I mean, that that's a lot of work that it takes a lot of, you know, um, Gail Goodman calls it the, you know, long, slow ramp or sales ramp of death, I think, or SaaS ramp of death. And the fact is, as somebody who runs a SaaS company, it, it takes a while to actually get anywhere close to a week of, you know, billing your time. Um, what I'm trying to get at though with, with specifically for consultants is how can we get away from billing? Like most of us, when we're hired, so if we're Ruby developers and we're hired by a client, the arrangement is typically they need Ruby development work and we cost a certain amount of money per hour, per day, per week to be hired or, you know, to be bought for that, that time period. And that's typically what we do. And it's very transactional. It's very one off. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to get at is how can we put together products that deliver ongoing value to a client that we can price? So just like a SaaS product is priced, we can price a retainer product and say, this is what you're going to get. You know, the, we start detaching ourselves from you're buying us for, you know, 20 hours a month in favor of things like, we're going to deliver these deliverables to you each month and we're going to price it at this amount. And then it becomes very much almost like a SaaS. I mean, it's like a SaaS of one, really, if you think about it. It's they're buying some outcome. They're buying ongoing optimization to their website or they're buying uh, you being there to ensure that framework level patches are applied or that backups are happening or, or something that you know, when you really think about it, yes, it's probably manual on our part, but it really, the outcome is similar to why a company might buy a SaaS product. Okay. So how do you talk a client or find people who need that kind of service? How do you get, get people to, to be in that position? Okay. So most of us build websites, right? We build web applications or, or even just, you know, brochure type sites for our clients. The fact is, and, and all of us know this, when you build something, it's never perfect day one, right? If you build a, um, let's say you're building a, a restaurant's website, 
Like the, the first ship is not going to be ideal. There's going to be a lot of room for improvement. And that improvement comes through data, through analytics and through acting on those, that analytics. So a very simple, um, kind of logical step would be go back to your clients and see who could you provide ongoing value to in the form of either optimization or insurance. So optimization would be making the product you built for them even better and making it better over time using data that you collect. And insurance would just be, um, you know, they spend a lot of money on you to build an app or to build a website. It would be really bad if that were to go away. So how could you come in and provide a product that is essentially ensuring that you're going to be there to make sure that this stays up and that, you know, backups are happening as they should and, and you know, and so on. So basically the, the value proposition is, is basically that there are a lot of ways to deliver an ongoing amount of value to a client who might have hired you for kind of a one-off engagement, uh, which most, most of us work, like I said, one-off, like they're, you know, we're hired to build something and then we deliver it and that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I, I guess I usually don't pursue an ongoing relationship with my clients outside of, hey, do you know people who want my work? Right. And I think that's, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, getting a client is the hard part, right? So if you can deliver ongoing value to them over time at a, at a fraction of your typical kind of like buy you full time rate, it's budgetable for the client and it's good for you because it gives you that fixed income. I have a friend, uh, Nick Tisabato, who has a product he just released called Revise, where the, the idea is you pay him $650 a month. He will run split tests on your behalf. He's just going to sign up for a visual website optimizer account. He's going to run your tests. He's going to look at your data and make improvements, you know, each month. You pay him $650 a month. He has something like 15 people doing this. I mean, he's got a nice five-figure month revenue that he knows is coming next September and next October, you know, and so on, which a lot of us, we, we don't know what we're going to be doing six months from now, but Nick does. Hmm. Now, do any of his clients say, wait, we don't need to pay you this much. We could just have someone spend a few hours on it on our staff. Yeah. So <laughs> a lot of us initially think that, right? Like, you know, that they could just do it themselves. But the fact is, first off, especially for smaller businesses, there are more important things that could be done in that time. You know, you might, if you're a business owner, like a lot of my clients were kind of businesses of one or two people and they don't have, you know, they've got bigger things to worry about than running these tests. And secondly, it's not really just running them. It's, it's, there's a lot of domain expertise, right? Like we know a lot and that's why we were hired in the first place, probably because we have a capacity that the client just doesn't have. And even if the client did have people on staff, there's still that kind of context switching cost. There's still the tax of them needing to say, okay, you know, Bob, you've been on, you know, you're working on these new features for us. We're going to take you off for a week to work on this and then go back to what you were doing. For From a cost perspective for a lot of businesses, that just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, you know, especially for smaller businesses where you don't have an extra person to put on the on that work. And if it's not a full person full person's job, so to speak, worth of work than, you know, hiring somebody to do it and then trying to find something else for them to do with the rest of their time may not make sense either. Right. Exactly. And, it, you know, plus it's a great way to, I mean, it, if they're paying you monthly, then when they do have a project that's big enough to warrant kind of hiring you 
you know, on a full-time basis for a few weeks, chances are, you know, they're just going to default to you because they're already paying you. You still have that relationship already in place. I, I was going to say, actually, yeah, I mean, a lot of developers, myself included, I think see it as more exciting and grand to develop new features and new applications rather than do A-B testing for an existing application. And you're basically saying, well, maybe it's more exciting, but swallow your pride a bit because it's going to have more business value and people will pay you more regularly and perhaps even better to do the split testing and, and other things that are necessary for the functioning of the business. Yeah, and, and it doesn't even need to be, I mean, split testing is one good example, but there are so many different ways that you can kind of encapsulate what you've done already during an active engagement and reformulate it, or reformulate it in such a way that it works on an ongoing basis, right? Like you can, case in point, like this, say you work with a SaaS company like mine, onboarding is something that I change all the time based off, you know, Kissmetrics data and everything else. Um, you could work with a SaaS company that you might have helped build their app and say, look, let's face it, like we took a stab in the dark when we built your kind of initial first run experience for users. Let's actually look at the data each month as you get signups and let's put into place refinements that will increase your traction. Like that's, you know, it, it's an, like I I can't imagine if PlanScope today was what it was back when I launched it a year and a half ago and I didn't change anything. We all know that's like ridiculous to think that, right? Like every product changes constantly. And unfortunately for a lot of clients, because they're working with us on kind of like a statement of work, you know, kind of uh, relationship where we're not only going to work with them if they bring us something big enough that warrants a new contract. This is a way that they can make these kind of continuous improvements to their product without needing to go and like get in the back of the line and, you know, have a new statement of work drafted and, and you know, and so on. So it's it's just a way to, again, for each project, you can really come up with a new product, a new retainer product uh, for each project you work on, but they should reflect the needs of the client. They should reflect the needs of the, the backing company behind it. All right. So I'm, I'm going to kind of give you a scenario here because I'm, I'm kind of curious what you come up with. But let's say that, and, and I always use the dentist example because my dad is a dentist, but let's say that I build a, a website for a dentist, you know, and so he, it incorporates a blog, it incorporates, you know, information about what it costs to hire him and things like that. And, um, you know, it allows people to set appointments with him and things like that. I finish the website, you know, then, then kind of what's the next step for me to determine working out some kind of retainer deal like that? Sure. So, I mean, I imagine you wouldn't think that that website you build for him is going to be completely perfect from a, like a, like conversion rate standpoint, right? Like, oh, right. Right. So what I would explain is, look, let's face it, like any new venture, you're going to need time and data to come up with new experiments that you can try. And really all you're doing is you're saying, I want to run continuous experiments on your on your website until we, and I'm going to show you. And part of this, I haven't talked about this yet, but part of it is producing a deliverable. You know, one of the, one of the easiest ways to do this is to produce an end of month report that says, look, these are the experiments we ran. This is where you were at the beginning of the month. This is where you are now. Hopefully the the needle has moved in the right direction. Like if you can show that like last month you got a uh, 5% conversion rate to the lead form, but this month you got a 7% 
I mean, that, that, that alone is usually enough for the client to say, this is worth, you know, putting money into each month because, you know, back the napkin calculation, if a lead is worth X and you can, you know, part of your proposal should be help working with the client to figure out. So what is a lead worth for you? What is a lead for your dentist or dental practice worth? Mm-hmm. And, you know, based on the lifetime value of an average client and your conversion rate from lead to paying customer, you know, what is the value of that? And if I can deliver, more leads to you over time, is that worth you paying me monthly to do that? And, you know, for a lot of clients, the answer is going to be yes, because there's nothing we can do up front with no data and with without kind of a complete context that is going to be perfect. And we just need to explain to the client that we can provide recurring value to them that will just do whatever is important to them. In this case, more leads, right? Yeah, Absolutely. I think your suggestion is also appropriate. I have, I have this client I've worked with for a few years, and last year they just did a ton of development. So they hired me and the guy who works for me, and I, we had a monthly retainer going, but it was for a lot of money and a lot of hours. And they said, you know, this year in 2013, we're just really not going to spend much on development, maybe here and there some stuff. But it sounds like if I had gone to them and suggested something along the lines of, well, let's just do a really much smaller retainer having to do with your business goals, that that would have gotten me more revenue and we would have sort of had more of an engagement with them on an ongoing basis as opposed to, as you said, them having to stand at the back of the line when we have other things. Yeah, the other thing that strikes me is that uh, I've had a lot of clients that I build something for them and then it kind of fizzles out or they, you know, they kind of set it up and they just expect, well, I had this great idea and so, you know, automatically it's going to make me, you know, a gazillionaire. And it turns out that uh, what they built is close, but not exactly what their, their market wants. And so, you know, having, helping them find that data and providing them the expertise to figure that stuff out, uh, it just, it just really seems to be something that can pay off there. And, and you're, you're working out a retainer for something that, for, for something that really adds some value to them. So. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, again, one of the other benefits too is that you have a lot of domain experience and you leaving the, you know, the picture can be kind of like when you think about the, like the, the struggle of a client needing to say, okay, we need to find another web developer. We need to onboard them. We need to kind of explain what we do. We need to explain what our goals are and everything. I mean, that, that's time, right? I mean, that's time that they don't want to spend. And there's benefits, I think, in having kind of that original person or that original team kind of staying around. Yep. So one one question I have, I mean, obviously you can give them the the value that you're going to provide with this retainer program, but do you ever find that you re- have resistance to that? And if so, what do you usually wind up offering or negotiating or, you know, saying to them that, uh, you know, that will work out for them? I mean, how do you, how so, do you, yeah, how do you address their concerns? The proposal that we make to them is typically just a standard, you're going to pay this, it's going to be budgetable, meaning you're not going to one week, you're not going to pay us a ton of money or something out of the blue. It's going to be something easily budgetable that will fit within your budget. Um, and secondly, it's on an ongoing basis, right? Like the, I'm going to keep providing value to you. If that value, if you don't see that value, you know, fire me, like stop the retainer. Um, one thing I'm actually pretty fond of, and this is something that actually a lot of my students have done is a lot of these optimization retainers really don't take a lot of time. I mean, the effective hourly rates can be in the upper three figures. And one thing that I recommend people do is 
uh, provide a money back guarantee. You know, if, if they're not happy with the last month and they want to cut things off, we typically wouldn't do this for like, if they're buying a month of our time full time, they're not going to, you're never going to want to do a money back guarantee because they act on that and you just got screwed out of a lot of money. Yeah. But with something like this, it's more doable because you're basically, you're hedging your bets by having a lot of small payments instead of one active big payment. So you have a lot of these and, and, you know, money back guarantees sell. I can tell you that as somebody who sells a lot of products, um, backing things with a, if you don't get more value than you put into this, I will pay you your money back. That typically is like a, a very good way to overcome a lot of objections. So if it is a month to month thing, you know, do you put some kind of limitation on that? So, you know, they work you for six months and then they're not happy. So they request six months of payback. Oh, no, it should it should always be like the last payment. You should never be able to say it's, it's like retroactive multiple months back. Right. That's kind of what I was thinking, but I wanted to clarify because it sounds like you've done this before. And so you probably have a little bit more context around what makes sense and what doesn't. Yeah. I mean, I've got a I've got a good friend who he uh, lives down in Mexico. He works for um, he does a lot of consulting for kind of like these small resort chains, I guess, out of Mexico. And he does this for conversion rate optimization. So he'll go and help a resort increase their online sales by, you know, on average, two to three percent over the span of a year. Now, two to three percent for a company that brings in, say, 10 million a year is a, is a decent sized amount of money. And that's exactly how he pitches it. He doesn't pitch it in. You can you'll get five hours of my time a month because to, to the buyer, that doesn't mean anything. You know, they're buying a product. They're buying that outcome. They don't really care necessarily about what goes into it. So he just aligns it with that. Um, hey, I can provide this much return value to you over time. And, you know, I'm going to deliver this end of month report that you can send up the chain to the CEO of the company. And it's going to show we spent this much on, on this guy, Osiris, and we netted this month, this much and, and, you know, ROI from the campaigns he did for us. And I mean, again, I'm, I'm focusing here on conversion rates and I've talked about split testing before, but if you're like a backend developer and you're not really cool with the whole marketing thing, the same principles apply. Just figure out what, what's valuable to your clients, whether it's, it could be making sure that all the API stuff that you wrote that integrates with these third parties is always going to be, you know, kind of working. And if something breaks due to an API, you know, incompatibility, you'll be there quickly to go and address that. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you could you could pitch it. Mm -hmm. So it seems like the retainer packages are a terrific way of, um, you know, working out a, an income or a residual um, income. But at the same time, I'm wondering what other ways are there for this? I mean, we did talk about products for a minute. Do you want to go into that? Yeah, absolutely. So... So I, I, can, I can kind of outline. So I, I teach a, a workshop with Patrick McKenzie where we basically cover this stuff. And the other things we talk about are uh, training. So training is a huge thing. Um, look at companies like ThoughtBot and look at the amount of training they, they do. And it works, you know, from a business development perspective and also a revenue perspective. Training is one of those things that you can, you know, if you if you were to go in and become the the master of uh uh, I've got a friend, Najif, out in London who is like the the Rails security guy. And he hosts training workshops. And the effective uh, hourly rate for that work is pretty substantial. 
But on top of that, it's really, when you, when you really think about it, it's paid lead generation because you're teaching somebody something and you're teaching a company how to better secure their Rails app. And they're going to forever look at you as the person who knows a lot about Rails security. So when they have bigger needs than are covered in, you know, the workshop, they're going to come to you. And it's also repeatable. You write the curriculum once and you just rinse and repeat. Um, with these kind of training engagements and, um, they, when done right, they can, they can have a very, very nice ROI attached to them. I'll, 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 uh, mention I've been doing training for a number of years, like probably a good two to four days a week for the last three, four years. I've been doing training of programming and I was always a little surprised that it did not lead to any consulting clients. You know, I would give the course and I would get very high marks and everyone was happy and then I never heard from them. And so I think it was about six months or a year ago, I was mentioning something during a class about, oh, yes, I had such and such a client and we were doing such and such a project. And someone said to me, oh, really? So you do development also? And that's when I realized, <laughs> and, and that's when I realized, oh my God, just because I say it at the start of the class and just because I have a slide about it, it does not necessarily enter into their heads. And so I started making it much more obvious during my courses. And sure enough, two of my clients came to me and said, you know, we could really use some help and we would love to have you do it. Uh, now it turns out I didn't have time for it, but I saw that just beating them over the head with, uh, with the topic a little more really made the difference. Yeah, I mean, when when I was running my consultancy, most of our clients came to us because we did we didn't do paid training engagements, but what we did is we did a lot of these kind of like educational seminars where we would teach people on like, you know, should you build an iPhone app or an Android app or something, and invite our local business community to our office to to hear us talk about it for an hour. I mean, this was primarily our, you know, customer acquisition channel was through education, but it's it's very effective too. I mean, when you're charging somebody and they're willing to pay for it, you're, you've already established cash flow, which is the big hurdle, right? Like the difference between somebody who hasn't paid you anything and somebody who's paid you at least a dollar is huge. And by offering this kind of training, uh, training could be, you know, whatever you're good, whatever people hire you for, you're capable of training, you're capable of teaching others about that, right? So a lot of us kind of fall prey to the whole expert dilemma where, well, I'm not an expert at this. And the fact is, you just need to be better than the people you're teaching. And you need to help lift them up to a higher level. And, you know, I don't consider myself an expert at Ruby or Rails, but I've taught a lot of people Ruby and Rails in a paid engagement because it's actually better for the student to be closer to the instructor than it is to have some person up in an ivory tower who's just so far above and beyond everyone else. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it works very, very well. Yeah, the, the story that I heard about that is that uh, during World War II, this, this I, I actually heard during my uh, admissions interview at MIT, and the guy who was interviewing me said that during World War II, all the junior professors were sent off to war, and so it was the senior professors who were teaching courses. And so apparently, you know, some super senior math professor comes in to teach freshman calculus, and the student says, would you mind going over homework assignment number five? And he goes, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh huh, and writes the answer on the board. And the student <laughs> says, "And the student says, is there any other way to do that?" And the professor says, "Uh huh, uh huh, uh huh." Writes the same answer and says, "But that way is harder." <laughs> <laughs> and that was such a great demonstration for me. A story about how, yeah, if you're if you're too deep in a subject, it can be very hard to lose perspective and understand what people need to scaffold up to learning it. 
Yeah. So uh, the training thing is something that I've been working on lately. And it seems like for the training and, and for a lot of these other products too, you you really don't want to shoot for like the, the lower end offerings that you want to be going for kind of the higher end offerings. And, and with the teaching and training, that's something that I've been doing is kind of having that higher end uh, course. Chuck, what do you mean by lower and higher end? So, you know, you have the 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 $5 training versus the $1,000 training, I guess. And if you're shooting for the $5 training, you may or may not be able to get people to sign up because they then have the perception of value of what you're offering, even though it may be good and may be worth it. Have you found that, and, and this is you in general, guys, um, have, have the rest of you found that to be generally true? Or, uh, you know, have you, have you made kind of the, the, the lower priced product and, and made it work? I definitely aim more for um, conveying value through price and through marketing. Because I think it's really easy for people to devalue your work when they don't see it cost very much. And it, it's been interesting to watch kind of like the app market for uh, like iOS and that kind of thing. They're seeing, you know, the different ratings that people are getting purely based on how much people end up paying, uh, like the kinds of customers that buy lower cost apps versus higher cost apps, which might have the exact same quality, but are getting much, much better reviews because the customer quality is higher. And they're also assuming that it costing more means that it has more value. And that's a pretty standard thing, even in consulting, right? Where my $50 an hour clients were not, were terrible. And when I changed to $75 an hour or a hundred or 150, like it was an instant upgrade in the, in the support and everything. They were so much easier to deal with. Yeah, definitely. And I think a big difference too is when you, when you talk about the low end to the high end training, the low end to me is kind of like B2C, right? Like you're selling to a consumer who, Hey, come learn about this whole Ruby thing, right? Like there's no, there's really no pressure. It's more of like a hobbyist, like more of like an interest kind of training engagement. It sounds like, whereas when you sell a big kind of like enterprise client or a corporate client, it's the company. It's not the, the attendee isn't paying the bill. It's the, it's their employer who's paying you. And it becomes much the, the engage or the arrangement is much different in that the employer is looking at it as, um, we want to make our employee more valuable. So you tell us how, uh, how your program will make the effectiveness of this employee more valuable. And it's an immediate win for, for our company. And I think that's why when you see like the, when you see some of these conferences where the price tags are huge, we need to always remember it's not the, it's usually not the attendees who are paying that. Yeah, that's true. Right. I mean, uh, I've also found that, uh, when I do training, you know, so I have my standard courses, let's say, you know, intro Python or intro Rails. And so if a company says, yeah, we like that syllabus, but we'd like to customize it in such and such a way. And if it's something that I have not yet taught, I say to them, well, I'm happy to teach that, but you'll have to pay me to prepare it. And they almost always say, okay, that's fine. Like they, they see the value to them. They understand that this is custom to their demands and their specifications, and they're totally okay with paying for that. Yeah. Have, have you guys thought much about, uh, so there's the kind of training in person or training over the web. What about just video products? Just sort of a paid, you know. You, well, that's you, the next step, right? Yeah. That's productized consulting. So training engagements are typically like one off still. I mean, it's still, kind of bordering, you know, borderline consulting, right? Like you're, you're still, it requires you showing up and doing something. Whereas once you start packaging that into a, you know, a product that I can stumble upon and buy, 
then you're actually out of consulting right then. You're, you're, you're selling stuff that doesn't require your engagement to uh, fulfill. A good example of this, actually, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but uh, Pete Keen just released a book on like Stripe integration. And also, uh, there's also, who was it? Ben's product, uh, SaaS kit, I think. These are all really just things that have been done a lot of times for consulting clients that are packaged into a product that anyone can buy. Any of us can just go and, you know, click the PayPal button and, you know, buy it. And, uh, this is really scalable training or scalable consulting. Yeah. I really like stuff like that too, because, I mean, on top of it being recurring income, it's also establishing yourself as an expert and kind of giving yourself a name in that market where your reach might not have been that that great otherwise. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're we're getting into the products now. We talked about books last week or a few weeks ago, and we've talked last about week. we've talked about a few other topics that are related to this. It seems like building the product is the easy part, and marketing it is the hard part. Or the more complicated part, I guess. Because when you're building the product, you're effectively leveraging your expertise to talk about it. And selling stuff isn't necessarily where your, you know, where your training and, and what have you has actually, you know, been focused. Do you find that to be true, you guys? That the marketing's the hard part? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I, w- I would say at first it is, but. Again, it's like anything else. I mean, it's if we're helping our clients market, let's say through retainer agreements, then we're kind of leveling up our own ability to do that for ourselves in the future. Um, so that that actually helped me a lot because I, I did a lot of marketing for clients when I was consulting and that helped me, you know, now, right? But yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where it becomes, yes, it's hard to sell anything, especially when you don't have like past customers or, or whatnot. But I think kind of having this gradual approach from going from, you know, full involvement, me, you know, you buying my time, and I doing something on your behalf to something more in the middle with kind of this productized consulting or training where, um, you know, you're buying me, but yes, I'm selling it to a lot of people at once, maybe, or it's it's more of like a repeatable process. I'm not doing something kind of from scratch each time to then going even further to uh, having an off-the-shelf transactional product. I mean, a lot of the same sales tactics tend to apply. It just, the the difference is really, it goes from high-touch sales to low-touch, where high-touch is, you know, I'm going to talk with the buyer and I'm going to propose something to them and negotiate maybe and so on, where low-touch is really you have the website and the website is your salesperson. Um, so I think that's, that's the harder part for, I think for a lot of us, that was the harder part for me was going to complete low touch sales, which tends to happen when you're going to sell video courses or books or whatnot. I think that's a lot easier if you already have a name in that space. Um, like I know, um, Avdi's, um, Tapas do pretty well. Gary Bernhardt's Dishrail software did pretty well. And I think a lot of that came from the fact that they were already known in that space and that other people that were also known in that space were talking about it. So I think that putting yourself in the position where you get to have that name and then releasing something like that where it can be low touch, I think that's kind of the, you know, it's difficult to do, but I think that that's the best combination for that. I think getting that name is even I guess the harder part to start with, right? You work to get the name and then you get out a product and then you got, then you're trying to juggle all the marketing at the same time. I'm actually launching my second one now and I feel the marketing is way easier 
like literally today as I launched it this morning than it was for the last one I launched at the beginning of the year. Because I guess I'm juggling less balls or I know how to juggle a few already so I can add a couple more to it. Yeah. And every book that I've done, basically, like I've screwed up a part of it and each one I screw up different things or less. And so, you know, you get better at it and some of it you kind of learn and it becomes more intuitive. And, you know, it's just like, oh, how do I, you know, make a shopping cart? And the first time it's like, you got to start from square one. But the second time it's just, oh, one, two, three, four, I'm done and move on. So I, I guess the question then becomes, as you get better at this, do you still kind of wing it? Because when I'm making it up on the fly, I'm just, you know, I, I'm not really sure what I'm after, what I'm doing. But, you know, the second or third or fourth time, sometimes I wind up putting some systems in place. Do you guys do that or do you tend to just, you know, make it up the next time and just, oh, that was real painful last time. I'm not going to do it this time. I put together a plan this time based off uh, the Smashing Magazine article, How to Launch Anything, uh, kind of as a guide to start with. And then hopefully I'll learn some stuff and, and have my own guide that will work better for me at least. Yeah, I'd also I'd also think about the fact that with with consulting, failure is very binary. You know, failure is getting fired, typically. Whereas with a product, if if it doesn't sell as much as you'd like or it doesn't sell at all, that doesn't mean necessarily that you failed. It just means that you get you get an opportunity to try it again, maybe make some tweaks. You know, you have it's not as black and white. I think is when like if you if you bomb a proposal. The lead vanishes, you know, generally, right? Whereas um, with something like this, it's just you, you launch it again and again, you know, until you figure out how to get, I guess, that whole like product market fit thing, right? Yeah, I was reading about one. I'd have to find the article now. But one guy who the second launch of the same book, like six months later, was was amazing, and the first launch was like you know a hundred dollars. Do you ever get kicked around for doing that kind of thing though, where you? You launched it before at a lower price, and then you launch it again at a higher price, and people who looked at it the first time get upset? Uh, I think you're always going to have someone. I know in my last book launch, there was someone that said, hey, this is just a bunch of blog posts. And I, my response was, well, that's kind of what I said it was. And I said it wasn't for like super advanced developers, but <laughs> it's not even worth I said it right on the thing. Like You can get most of this content by looking on the site. And this is not for advanced developers. This is for someone getting into this so that they know where to go to get good content and to kind of and to build good stuff, so I just gave him a refund. It's not worth fighting about it. That's actually I, I like that you brought that up. That's actually something almost verbatim that uh, Patrick McKenzie talked about recently, where he was saying that the person with that typical mentality is somebody who doesn't value their own time. Whereas um, he made the analogy once of if you say that a ebook, for instance, everything in it is available for free online, you could just go and like Google around and find everything, right? The fact is, if if that's an employee at a company who's responsible for that, no boss wants to write a, a paycheck that has in the memo field, like, researched free information online, right? So part of your job is curation and, and putting together, like, an easily digestible, like, here's a product, here's everything you need to know in Pete's, you know, case on Stripe with Rails. You don't need to go and, like, Google around for hit or miss blog posts or blog posts that are older don't apply anymore here's you know spend 50 bucks or whatever it is and start to finish everything you need to know about stripe and rails and that i think to a lot of people who value their time especially businesses that's a no-brainer but a lot of a lot of us hackers i think look at it as well i could just spend you know 20 hours googling it around you know googling it to find the same info 
But, you know, 20 hours at most of our rates, I'm sure it really eclipses anything close to what we'd be paying Pete. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm kind of curious when you're talking about products like that, that, you know, are basically a compendium of all of the blog posts you've written. Are you launching them by marketing those things to the people who read your blog? Or are you trying to get people who, you know, wouldn't see those in their feed reader every couple days? Well, I say market your best stuff. Um, market the best blog posts that you have and have the call to action be, you want this and more? I have a book. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm very big on, I know, uh, Eric, Jeff and I were all in 30 by 500 Amy Hoy's class. And that's part of the whole thing is, you know, the e-bombs or the education marketing as a way to really sell. Because through that, I mean, if you can deliver value for free, if you can show somebody, look, I made your life better off than you were before you read this blog post. And if you want it even more better off, I have a book. That's a very effective way of making a sale. So is that still like the primary way that you're using to market? I'm wondering, like, are you, is that, is that where, you know, the, the most work you put in is marketing it through your blog or through your website versus um, reaching an audience that you wouldn't have otherwise reached? I mean, I sell all of my products. I sell through either blog posts or newsletters. Um, okay. That's definitely, that's how I do everything. And, and that stuff is conducive to being shared, right? So like if somebody reads a post that they really like, it's going to, be shared with their friends. It might make it to Hacker News, you know, and so on. What about guest posts on to reach someone else's market in the same or any good targeted field as well? So I've done that. I would recommend if you're going to do that, I would have the drive people to a squeeze page that you're not really trying to sell them anything. You're just trying to get an email address that you can build up a relationship over time with. Yeah. So, I mean, sending blind traffic to a product generally doesn't always work, but getting them kind of in your ecosystem and pointing them to, you know, things you've written, uh, put together, you know, you could put together like a drip email course, which does remarkably well. That's actually how I tend to sell most of my SaaS app these days. You know, you could just provide value to them over time, build up a relationship where they trust your opinion. They trust, they, they like how you think they like what you write. And the book is just kind of a natural extension of all of that. And I mean, the other way to think about it is, I mean, if you're selling a book, that's something that someone has to read. And if you're sending emails, that's something someone has to read. So you're basically making sure that, you know, here's these emails. If you can't read these emails, then the book's probably not going to be a good fit for you. So it's basically like, you know, the same modality, you know, it's like if you put, you know, three or five minute videos on YouTube to, and then sell a video product, like that's the same kind of idea. Mm hmm. Yeah, there's also the, was it Pat Flynn calls it his be everywhere strategy. So he's on every, like YouTube and on email and on everything to catch everyone and funnels them to different products that may or may not be like the video for the YouTube people. Yeah, I was thinking about that reference, but more in terms of what Ash was saying earlier about uh, Avdi and Gary Bernhardt and how uh, their screencast series had done well. And But I mean, be everywhere for a while, Gary Bernhardt spoke it like, Every conference you could think of that was sort of related to the Ruby community or Python, I mean, be everywhere. You couldn't turn and look and not see Gary somewhere. That's part of how I took his be everywhere message. Yeah, there's definitely something to that. I tend to take that to be, I don't know, I'm not huge on like being everywhere just because I feel like if I'm going to be somewhere, then I need to provide some sort of I don't know if support is the right word, but uh, basically I, I feel like I need to be able to answer questions when they come up and 
um, provide people with information when they request it and things like that. And so I don't feel like I can be everywhere. So, I, and I don't want like an empty, an empty place where, you know, people come and they, they don't get what they want from me. So I don't know. I, I tend to pick and choose some, but you know, yeah, definitely, definitely be out where people can find you. And I definitely like Pat Flynn and his approach to a lot of things. So, so when you're building a product, uh, are, are there things that you guys tend to struggle with? Well, I think my biggest struggle is the, is the marketing. Um, yeah, outside of, you know, the odd technical glitch you get in, in launching probably anything. The marketing used to be a struggle. It's getting better. Like I said, you know, each, each product or each, you know, semi product or productized consulting, it, you get better. You, you make different mistakes and you kind of level up. I think the biggest, especially at the beginning, the biggest problem was actually finding time to do it. Um, especially if books or like projects where you can't kind of release incrementally, they're, they're hard because you need this chunk of, you know, 50, 100 hours to put it together before you can even get it to the market. And so that, that was a hard thing for a while. And I mean, lean, lean startup, that stuff's supposed to help it on the software side. But, you know, even that you still have to do a little bit before you can get customers in it. Um, so that, that's always been a problem for me. Um, the past few years is getting it started. Yeah. I mean, I would, um, it's <sighs> a good way to put this. I would, um, you know, there, there's times where now that I've kind of transitioned fully to 100% of my income through products, I can't help but sometimes be almost nostalgic, I think, of how I could go and make a, you know, a, a relatively ton of money pretty quickly consulting. And I don't think there's anything wrong in really straddling both worlds. Like I think if you, especially if you get more into the, like what we talked about, the, the kind of recurring, uh, subscription based retainers. I mean, that alone should free up your time in that you can at least say, I'm going to work on all of my monthly retainers. Really, you know, I'm going to focus the first week of each month on them. And then that the other three weeks, you could spend a lot of time on building products that can also further diversify your income through, you know, multiple revenue streams. And I think that's the goal. Like right now, I mean, it's it's definitely a first world problem in saying this, but I was actually in a, uh, there's a chat room I hang out in with a bunch of bootstrappers. And we were complaining yesterday about how it's so annoying that we have all these random Stripe deposits going into our bank account each day. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's really nice to have that kind of diversification. And I think that kind of transitioning away from straight out selling your time and going into more things where you're pricing a product, you're selling the benefits, you're providing a, an outcome and a deliverable is a really, really like, I, I wish I could have focused more on that transition when I went into products versus like a clear cut between, you know, time-based consulting to jumping headfirst into to products. Because when you're consulting, you're typically billing. You're looking backward and saying, I worked this many hours or this many weeks and I'm going to generate an invoice. With products you're pricing, you're needing to think about, okay, what's the value I'm producing? What are the, you know, how can I align that value with the benefits that the customer is going to get? And I, I really think what we talked about today is a really good kind of in-between between the two. One other thing to keep in mind, too, and I know we've talked about it at least uh, in chat during the week or maybe in the pre-show, is that a lot of people we see doing training that get out of consulting totally, 
run out of things to train because they're not getting challenged every day. They're just kind of, well, what am I randomly going to look at? I know most of my tutorials that I write come out of a specific thing I had to do for a client or, you know, I have one that I'll do based off the launch last night with WooCommerce, three or four things I had to do that there was just no solution out there. So I had to figure it out. That's one, yeah, one danger I would say caution against based on our discussions of the hosts here. That's that's something that I've thought about a lot, too. Um, one of the reasons that I've wanted to be able to do both to continue to consult and like stay doing the work that I do, as well as kind of finding this recurring uh, like side income is that I want my experience to stay relevant, but I also want people to respect uh, the fact that my information is relevant and up to date. I think because there are a lot of people that don't uh, that don't do consulting or whatever on a regular basis, they become less and less relevant in that way. As I said before, I've been doing consulting for a while, and part of the thrill and part of the excitement for me is that I'm always exposed to these new ideas and new challenges. So I think my personal goal is not to get rid of the consulting, but just to make it make myself less dependent on it. And I've done. The, uh, over the next six months to a year, moving into products at least partly so I can balance out the uh, recurring income and the, uh, the income that I know I'm going to get versus the ideas and the consulting. So of all the things that we've talked about today, I'm, I'm kind of curious, what is kind of the biggest thing that people can approach first? And the reason I ask is because if I find that I'm trying to do products and retainers and this and that and the other thing, I tend to really get distracted and I don't get a lot of good things done. So which one is kind of the most approachable? Which one would you recommend that people kind of chase first? I think the easiest thing to do right now is to look at your past, you know, your past clients, your current clients and try selling them a product and that product being a SaaS of one really where you're providing ongoing value. You're listing out the benefits you're tying it to a value proposition, and you're pricing it. And I think that that experience alone is going to really put you on the right step to, if you do want to move toward kind of these like turnkey products, it's going to really level you up, I think, and and getting you closer to that. Okay, cool. Well, I think we're about out of time, so we're going to go ahead and get into the picks unless anyone else has uh, questions for Brennan. I just, I just have one quick question, which is I think it's Amy Hoy who mentioned at some point that all the people she knows who moved from consulting to products are delighted and would not move back. Um, is that what you found also personally and talking to people? So it's, it's kind of funny. I, um, I look at, I get the same thrill out of consulting, uh, when I write a book or I, I, um, you know, I, I have plan scope or something, but on a bigger scale. When you have products and you're not selling your time, there's more potential customers that you can have and more people that you can deliver a really great experience and a really great outcome to. However, I don't think I would want to go back to running a big team just due to the kind of like I'm, I'm more or less a loner and I don't really want to be in a management position. But having kind of that one client who you're working with them alongside them as kind of like a partner there's a lot of really things that I miss about that, let's just say. But I still get parts of that. Like, I wouldn't say it's completely turned off because I'm still delivering value to people just in a different medium. Like, instead of the medium of buy me and I will work on your behalf, now it's... Because it really, when, when they hire me, when anyone hires us, they're, they're hiring us to solve a business problem, right? So they're, you know, they have a problem with their that they want to get fixed and they hire us to build that. 
But when they buy a SaaS product or they buy a, a book, I mean, really, the, the goals are really the same. They want to have some better outcome. So it's just a different way to get to a an outcome, I think. Just one is much more hands-on. The other is more passive, at least on my part. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, one more question that I have for you, and, and I've been discussing with a friend of mine. He wants to put together a course. He does uh, SEO and things like that. And the problem that he has is that when when clients come to him, they basically hire him to make his website better and things like that. And they, they, they don't really realize that what he's telling them is, I'm going to do all of these things, but you have to write content. So how do you approach these kinds of problems when it's uh, basically a situation where the client still has to do some work in order to make it pay off? So this is actually a really good place to introduce packaging if, if you want to get into that. Um, a really thing that you could do that actually I know quite a few people who are doing are saying, I can give you the course. It's going to be much more do-it-yourself. You'll need to take what I teach you and apply it and write your own copy. Or you can get the course plus you know, so much of my time and you'll get the, the guy who just has taught you everything and I'll be there to implement some of it for you. So if, he, if he's still okay with doing kind of one-off consulting, it's a great way to have consulting clients without going through the whole biz dev cycle. Um, but on top of that, if he doesn't want to do like one-off consulting, I, I think a lot of it, his goal, the goal of that product should be empowering people enough to know what to look for. So they're going to need to hire, let's say, a copywriter. The SEO course should instruct the, the person who's hiring what they, uh, what they should be looking for, what they should be asking for, and really just put them on a better, it's like when I, you know, if I'm doing some weird big home improvement project, I know next to nothing about that kind of stuff. But if I read a few blog posts or a book on that, like a book on, uh, I read a book on building a shed because I'm looking to have a contractor build me a little backyard studio. And I want to know at least enough about the terminology and what I should be looking for that I don't want to go into hiring that contractor and be blind. I want to at least have context. So I think if he positioned it maybe that way, that could help too. But um, yeah, it just depends on what he wants to do with that, I think. Yeah, it makes sense. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and wrap this up, get into the picks. Ash, why don't you start us off with picks? Sure. Uh, it'll be pretty quick because I just have one. Uh, so I really like using emoji and I have a lot of friends that don't use uh, Apple devices and are very sad that they can't see emoji. Uh, so I found this uh, a Chrome extension that uh, allows you to see emoji in things like Twitter and it's called Chromoji. I see dead people. No, I see emoji. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Curtis, what are your picks? Uh, I've got two today. One is Puzzle Juice, which is actually a free game I got from the Starbucks card. And it's like Tetris, but when you complete a line, you actually have to, it turns them into letters, and then you have to spell words at the same time. Um, and the blocks only go away when you spell words, at least three-letter words, and that's been fun and, and hard. Uh, and then my second one is The Total Money Makeover. It's just a great book for getting out of debt. I think, Chuck, you may have recommended it before as well, um, but I went through it, and it's an awesome book to get your finances on track, uh, even as a freelancer or as anything, just to think of your money the proper way. Awesome. Yeah, I, my wife and I are doing Financial Peace University, which is uh, Dave Ramsey's video. Which we uh, can't get in Canada because it says university, and there's some law against that. Oh, really? Yeah, it's kind of it's very dumb, actually. <laughs> but yes. <laughs> 
Well, next time I'm coming to Canada, I'll put one in my suitcase for you or something. Uh, Reuven, what are your picks? So I've got one pick. It's a book that I'm still in the middle of reading, but I'm really enjoying. It's called Thank You for Arguing by Jay Heinrichs. It just came out with a new revised edition, although I'd never read the previous one. And it's all about the art of rhetoric and how to basically convince people of things and the different techniques you can use. And as I'm going through it, first of all, it's just hysterically funny and really clever. And second of all, it seems like this is a really great way to get clients to do what you want, or it gives all sorts of techniques to do that. I haven't tried it out yet, but I'm going to soon, so clients be warned. Awesome. Jeff, what are your picks? I've only got one this week as well, and it comes from consulting. A friend of mine has inherited a PHP website with a bunch of images that are shown at, like, I don't know, no more than 250 by 250 or something pixel-wise, and they are 4 and 5 meg PNG, like, super high-res images that don't get scaled. And so uh, Opti JPEG and Opti PNG image tools. I just point them out a directory and they will blow through it and optimize your images. Awesome. All right, I've got a couple of picks. Uh, the first one is I cleaned my office. <laughs> Having a clean office, that's my pick. It just makes a huge difference for me. Um there's less mouse running, mice running across your feet because they don't have food anymore. Yeah, stuff like that. Um, the thing is, is I would sit down and I'd have to like force myself to get to work. And it wasn't so much that I didn't have something to do or I didn't know where to start. It was just that I'd sit down and I'd feel like I would feel a little bit overwhelmed, I guess. And uh, cleaning my office has solved a lot of that for me. Go figure. Yeah, I... I don't know that I have any other... Well, I guess I, I have uh, started doing one other thing, and that is um, when I clean my office, I scanned a whole bunch of receipts and invoices and stuff um, and put them into Evernote. And, oh, it's been so nice because now I know where they all are. I set up notebooks for all of them. You can drag and drop them, or you can just uh, use the drop-down to move stuff around. So uh, that's definitely been nice. I have a scan snap. What is it? What's the number on it? It's the... S1300i, and uh, it's a little portable one, so I can actually take it with me when I travel if I want to, but I usually don't. I just take a little folder with me and drop all the receipts in it, and then I scan them when I get home, or I'll take a picture of them with my iPhone. But uh, in any case, I can put them all into Evernote. They're all in one place. I don't have to fuss over where that stuff is anymore, and I threw away a crap ton of paper that was sitting on my desk. So um, I'll put links to all that stuff in the show notes as well. Uh, Brennan, what are your picks? So I've got two picks. Uh, the first is a product called Informly, inform.ly, by Dan Norris. And we talked today about how it's important to have deliverables that you can give to your clients or your retainer clients. What Dan's done is pretty much just build a service that will tie into Google Analytics and slurp out like conversion data and everything and provide a nice little PDF that gets emailed to a client once a month. So it's really, you want to showcase how their traffic stacks up, how many conversions they've gotten this month, and so on. It's a really nice service that you can just you know plug in your link into analytics and plug in your uh, client's email address, and it'll shoot it off to them you know, on your behalf. Uh, the second pick is a conference called IndieConf, I-N-D-I-C-O-N-F dot com. Uh, that is actually the first freelancing conference that I know about. It's, so it's a conference dedicated solely to freelancers. Um, it's coming up in November, I think, in Raleigh. 
So if you're on the East Coast or accessible to uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, I'll be there. So uh, definitely come by and, and see me. But it's it, I was there last year. It was a great conference. A lot of really good stuff from uh, freelancers and like attorneys and, you know, uh, accountants and people just talking about what you need to know if you're a freelancer. Awesome. Yeah, that looks really cool. All right. Well, um, looks like that's it. So we'll wrap up the show. Thanks for coming, Brennan. And thanks for your expertise. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate it. All right. We'll catch you all next week.